Well, this morning we are going to be looking at the judgment seat of Christ or what some people refer to as the Bema seat. Uh, so in this series in Revelation, we are not going to be in Revelation this morning. But last week, with taking the week for a snow week, and I don't like preaching to the camera, I took and came up with something sort of on the fly. I had a couple hours lead time, but it was something I had preached on before, and so I hadn't done anything sort of on a timeline, and so for those of you who were able to watch last week before the power ended my sermon, uh, or lack of power, I should say, uh, we were looking at the rapture, something we talked about a few years ago, but we're looking at what's happening here when we're in Revelation, we're at the very end of the tribulation period. Jesus is about to physically come back to earth. And so we think about a timeline. We, we pray all the time for, for Jesus' return. We're supposed to be living every day like he is going to return. And I believe that that return for his church will not be a physical return to the earth, but he is going to come and we are going to meet him in the clouds and that is going to happen prior to the rapture. And I laid out last week, and my, my thoughts on that are the main reason is because I think the tribulation period is about Israel, not about us. That the tribulation is God bringing Israel back to himself. But secondly, we looked at Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, Jesus presents in an answer to his disciples on when he is going to begin his reign, when his kingdom will begin, he gives this long explanation of these terrible times that are going to, to come, and then his visible return, and all these things. But then he also tells them that he will be coming like a thief in the night. He's, he's talking about two different things there. His physical visible return to this earth that happens at the end of the tribulation, no one is going to be wondering what is going on. But he also speaks of this coming like a thief in the night. He talks in uh, verse 36 of Matthew 24 about that day and the hour that only God the Father knows, not even him. And so if if there are signs that will point to exactly when his return will be, there will be things that will happen that will point to it that the people who are living through the tribulation can know these things happening and when he's going to come back. But he's also coming like a thief in the night. What's, what's the difference there? And I believe the difference is that the thief in the night is the rapture. His physical return is what we will be looking at very soon in Revelation 19 of when he actually comes back to this earth to begin his reign. And so at the end of Matthew 24, he gives the parable of a servant and whether or not he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. And the man who is ready for the thief coming in the night, if he'd known when, he would have been ready. And those parables point to this unknown time. And, and Jesus is pointing to a loss if you're not ready. And he's speaking to his disciples here. They have believed in him. They are possessors of eternal life. What does, he, what does he mean that there's a loss if you're not ready for his return? It's, they're not going to miss out on the rapture. What, is, what are they going to miss out on? 
And I believe he's talking about losing out on rewards that will be given out at the Bema seat. A Bema is a Greek word for judgment. The, this image that is given in the New Testament through Paul's writings of a Bema seat is it's an image that was of the judge at the Olympic Games. The judgment was handed out for the performance. Something that would have been very familiar to this audience, the audiences that Paul was writing to in Corinth and, and others that understanding that those who won, those who did well, were given this crown, that were given a reward. And so that is what we're looking at the time when Jesus will, will be in that position, in that seat, and judging his believers. Now we get farther in Revelation, we'll be looking at the great white throne judgment. At that time, I'll, I'll speak to what judgments we see throughout Scripture. This is a judgment that I believe is solely for the church. This is believers. We will not be at the great white throne judgment. That is for unbelievers. But this judgment is for the church alone. We're going to start looking at this today in 1 Corinthians 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1, Paul says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we have, having it put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we were in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And this passage is, is one of those that, when we are faced with death, the loss of someone that we love, we can, we can look at and understand that in this life, as we are living, it is... Paul speaks there of this groaning, this, this suffering that, that we go through in these physical bodies, and we look forward to the day where we don't have to do that anymore, and where you're home with the Lord. But as long as we are here, we are, are walking by faith. We can't see it yet, but we know it's true, and we know that we will be with our Lord someday, and we will have that, that life swallow up, us up. That what we experience now is nothing compared to the life that we will experience with our Heavenly Father for eternity. That life that is eternal, but then he gets there to, to verse 9. He says, therefore we also have as our ambition, 
whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. While we are in this house or tent or dwelling or whatever you want to call this, it is to be our ambition as we are walking by faith and knowing that eternity is so much longer than this life, that this life cannot even be compared to eternity. I'm not sure our minds can even comprehend eternity. Amazing Grace, we were singing there, it it makes me chuckle when I sing it. I know very few songs from start to finish, and it's actually been a while since they've asked me to sing for them, but when my little girls want me to sing for them at night, you can only sing Jesus Loves Me and Itsy Bitsy Spider so many times, and so I always end up singing songs like Amazing Grace that I know at least more than a couple verses of, yeah, it's amazing, Grace. You think about that. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise. And we think, if I live to be 100, that's a really long life. I was explaining numbers to Caroline was asking me the other day if, if there was more than 153 people in the world. Yeah, there's 7 billion. We looked it up, actually. There's almost 8 billion now. I was trying to tell her, you know, it, do you know what that is? She says, no. I said, well, you know, you have ten tens, that's a hundred. You have ten hundreds, that's a thousand. You have a thousand thousands, that's a million. You have a thousand millions, that's a billion. When we've been there a billion years, we'll have no less days to sing his praise. Eternity is a long, long time. What Paul is basically saying here, I'll break this down to the basic point when he gets to verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's why it's our ambition to live pleasing to God. Because we're going to be rewarded, rewards that will last all of eternity. The wreaths that were given to the Olympic victors would wither and die. Rewards that trophies, things that we earn here in this life, get tarnished. They get lost. They get broken. They are not made to last. But these rewards, this living pleasing to God, is something that will go on forever. And Paul had that eternal perspective that everything that he was doing was building for that, that it didn't matter the suffering that he faced in this life because he knew what was to come. And he wanted to live to please God because he was going to give an account for his life. I heard Pastor Trevor talking this morning about his, his weight loss journey. It reminds me of a joke I, I once heard Talk about a weight loss journey. Have you ever seen the show that's no longer on called The Biggest Loser? I saw this thing years ago. It said, I set my DVR to record The Biggest Loser, and it just keeps recording Michigan games. So we changed that to the Cowboys for you. <laughs> oh, but Trevor, for months now, has had this goal in mind for a trip they're taking in a few months of a weight that he would like to get back to. He's done with school. 
he has he doesn't have to focus on all of these things and he's trying to watch the things he eats and he's got a bet on it that whoever loses more weight between him and his friend will have to or whoever doesn't lose as much weight is going to have to buy this steak dinner and so he wants to lose the weight and he wants to win and so he bases the decisions he's making throughout his day how do i spend my time what do i put in my body all of these things on this goal of winning of reaching his goal weight that's basically what Paul is saying about our entire lives as believers is that we should be making every decision, how I spend my time, how I spend my resources, how I treat other people, all based on an eternity that is going to come and the rewards that could be mine if I do the things that God has put before me to do. That's why Paul says that we are to walk by faith, not by sight. To live a life pleasing to him. Because we're going to give an account. As believers, we don't like to think of judgment and those things being in our future. And no, we will not be judged on whether or not we deserve to be with God for eternity. We don't. It's clear. But we, as believers in Jesus Christ, will be seen through his blood and his righteousness. And we are in the Lamb's book of life and we will spend eternity with him. Praise him for that. But he is, has given us his spirit. He has put good works before us to do. And he is going to judge us on those things. And that was Paul's whole mindset in his life, which we'll get to more later on. But turn with me quickly to Philippians 1. Paul gives a very clear picture of how he views his life. Philippians 1, verse 21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. It's not that to live is it's part of my life to, to be a Christian. It's part of my life. No, as long as I am in this body, it's all about Christ. To live is Christ, but I know that when that day comes, when I go home to be with him, it's a gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. He didn't even know which is better. He knows that when he gets to go home and be with the Lord, that he won't suffer anymore. That he won't have to face any of the challenges that he faced. That he won't have to live with whatever that thorn in his side was. All of these things that he has to look forward to, it's a gain. But if he's here, he gets to continue on in fruitful labor. He gets to continue building for that life to come. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. That's an eternal perspective of facing these challenges, of facing hardships, of being persecuted, of knowing that someday your life is going to be taken for your faith. And, and how much easier would it be if that was just today? But yet, if I get to continue living, I get to continue serving, and I get to continue glorifying God and the opportunities he's given me, 
and building for an eternity of glorifying him. That's what he's talking about there in 2 Corinthians 5. That life that is pleasing to God is this life that is focused on serving him, on glorifying him. I just want to focus on what we will be judged on as believers. And we'll look at 1 Corinthians 3. I was talking about this in our small group we met recently. I think it's one of the most interesting things in all of Paul's writing. That when you look at the church at Corinth and everything they had going on wrong there, that the first thing that he hits them with is their lack of unity. And he starts out that way, and in the second chapter he, he speaks of his own spiritual walk, and then you get to the beginning of chapter 3, and he tells them that, that he can't speak to them as spiritual men, that they are infants in the flesh. And he, he's trying to prod them on to spiritual maturity that is built on the unity of the church. Something that we've looked at several times in places like Ephesians 4. This is what God has designed for us. And so we get to 1 Corinthians 3.10. Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. I've mentioned this before. When Paul talks about the grace that was given to him, he's not speaking directly to the eternal life that he has gotten through grace. And what he's saying there is that the sinner that I was, like any other sinner, I am a recipient of God's grace. But God's grace to him, when he refers to him that way, is the opportunity God gave him to serve, to build the church, to witness to people all around the Roman Empire, to go to the Gentiles and to preach the gospel. That is what Paul calls the grace that was given to him, that his opportunity to serve despite who he was. And so when he's talking about this foundation that was laid, it goes on in verse 11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. So this foundation that each of us must be careful how we build on is Christ Jesus. What he's talking about here is the church. Coming out of the context he was in there of, of where they are and you know their disunity he talks about in chapter 1 is like many Greeks would do, that, you know, I'm of this philosopher, or I'm of this guy, I'm of this guy. And they were doing that with Paul and Apollos and others. And, and Paul's saying, well, no, we're all of Jesus. And so here he's looking at the church and saying, this is our foundation that we build on. Be careful how you build. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. Paul is talking about here in this context of building the church. What are you doing with what you've been given to glorify God that that Jesus Christ promised the building of the church that not even the gates of hell could stand against it, that this was his way of spreading the good news of the gospel 
and of glorifying God in this unseen age. And that the moment that we are saved by grace through faith, we are baptized in one spirit and added to this body. And what are you doing to build it? In your daily lives, are you living lives that are glorifying to God so that others see what you have and want? they want it? When you are a part of the body, the local body that you are a part of, are you using the spiritual gifts that God has given you? Is your life about laying down a solid building on top of the foundation that is Jesus Christ? Because Paul says here that we are all going to face this judgment that he describes as a fire and the things that aren't built to last, the things that are done with the wrong motives or the things that were done for us and not for God, they aren't going to last. Those aren't for eternity. He makes it clear that this is not someone that is not saved, yet person will be saved, yet as by fire, but they are going to come out of their spiritual life on this earth with nothing to show for it. That there will be people who are saved by grace, who have the Spirit within them, and yet when Jesus says, what did you do with it? They weren't going to have anything to show. Are we building on the right foundation? Are we using the right materials? God has given us his spirit. He's given us the opportunities. What are we doing with them? Are we building on that? And then again, you go to our last point. I mean, is that our focus? Is that what we are intent on doing? Or do we become intent on our own lives and our our jobs and our children and things that we can even view in a right way as blessings from God, but if we're not putting him first and the things that he has given us to do first, then we're building things that don't last. In the same vein, we'll we'll look at Romans 14. Let's start in verse 8. Paul says, For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. Verse 12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. As this chapter starts out and continues on, Paul's looking at the things that people eat. Is it meat that's been sacrificed to idols and the things that people drink and all these things that were causing divisions among the church? And, and Paul's saying, why would you be focused on those things? You need to be focusing on building one another up instead of judging one another because we are all going to stand before him and face judgment for our lives as believers. That our focus needs to be on building the church, not on what my own personal liberties are or what someone else is doing, but how do I edify them and build them up in the Lord? It is glorifying God through the building of the church, I believe, is what the Bema Seat is about. And notice, 
think it's an interesting thing to point out that none of this is about morality. Now, I'm not saying that morality isn't important. Uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, we'll read it. That's an interesting passage. 1 Peter 1, I'm sorry, not 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, verse 13 through 16. says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That morality in our lives is important because we are worshiping, we are seeking to glorify a God who is holy, who is moral. That these things are important, but what I think is interesting here, what he starts this out there in verse 13, therefore, prepare your minds for action. And I think that the point I want to make out of all of that is that as we are preparing our minds for action, if we are focusing on sin, we cannot be focused on serving God. But the beautiful thing in our lives as believers is that if we are focusing on serving God, that he provides real joy and peace and contentment there. And so that those sinful things that we used to want, we used to desire, we used to crave, become less and less and less. And so that as Paul speaks of this judgment and he's talking about works, the things that we are doing, and he's not focused on morality, that's the reason why. It's because that morality will come from those works. It is important. We cannot be living lives that look just like the world and expect to glorify God through that. But if we are solely focused on, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this, and I don't do that, and so I must be living a life pleasing to God, and yet he puts opportunity after opportunity after opportunity in front of us to serve him, and we just say, well, I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this. That's not pleasing to God. In fact, if anything, it looks a whole lot like the Pharisees that Jesus had nothing nice to say about. That outwardly, their lives were, were moral. And yet Jesus, when he presents his morality, God's morality, that no one can live to that standard. And yet we have an opportunity to, to live that way because we have his spirit within us. And we are walking by the spirit and we are letting him lead us into these good works and doing these things and we have that joy and contentment. We can live lives pleasing to God. And when we get to the judgment seat, our works that are judged will be done in the right attitude and for the right reasons. The third thing I wanted to look at on this, on the judgment seat, is what are the rewards that we would be expecting from this? Another thing that when we looked at earlier in Revelation, we were in Revelation 4, and we were looking at the elders, and they were casting their the crowns that they had before God. Oftentimes people think of that, that this is what the rewards are, that yes, Jesus is going to give us crowns, and then we're going to throw them back to him. It's there in Revelation, I believe, that is something that I, I told you, I think the elders there are a representation of 
the overcomers that Jesus points to in the letters to the churches, or it may be a specific number of those overcomers, and yes, they are casting those crowns to him, but I think there is an actual, there are, there will be rewards that will last for eternity. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2, in verse 11, Paul says, It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And the way this is laid out, the first point and the last point, and the two middle points are, are parallel. So that if, for if we die with him, we will also live with him. And you get to the last point, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we have died with him, if we have believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life, we will live with him forever. If we show up at the Bema seat like the person Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 3 that has nothing to show, he's still going to be saved yet as by fire. Jesus Christ will remain faithful because he cannot deny himself. We have become a part of him. We have believed in him for eternal life. The two middle ones there, if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. As believers, if we endure in the good works and the hardships and the suffering of the Christian life, he is going to give us an opportunity to reign with him. But if we live our lives for ourselves, denying him, he will deny us that opportunity. This is not a, you were never really saved. This is talking to believers. When Paul says it's a, it's a trustworthy statement, uh, scholars think that that means that, that this is, a, is something that was repeated in the church, throughout the church, that this is something believers would say to one another. And Paul says it's true. We have this opportunity to reign with him. Remember when the, the mother of James and John wanted her sons to sit on Jesus' left and right, he didn't say it was a bad desire. He just said, be careful what you wish for. That to be able to have that opportunity, to have that amount of authority in eternity was going to come at great cost in this life. Do you think you can drink that cup? And that again, reigning with Jesus Christ does not mean that you get to sit on a throne and do nothing and wait for someone to come and drop grapes into your mouth or, or fan you. But Jesus Christ gave us the example of what it means to be a leader, and that is to be a servant. And so this opportunity to reign with him is an opportunity to serve with him for eternity. Another one, I know we've looked at that one before. Another one we looked at before, I'm, I'm going longer than I wanted to here. So there's Romans 8, 17, and Paul is talking about coming out of walking in the Spirit. He gets into talking about how we are adopted by the Spirit as children of God. And then verse 17, he gets to, if we're children of God, we are heirs of God, meaning we have eternal life. And he says, and co-heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. There is a condition for being a co-heir with Christ. Christ is going to reign for eternity. He will sit on the throne of David forever. If we want to be a co-heir and to reign with him, we have to suffer with him. And that's what will be judged there. 
And that suffering, I think, is living a life for Christ, no matter what comes. Uh, When we looked at the churches in Revelation to the overcomers, Jesus gave promises. And all of the promises had this idea of a closeness with him. To the church at Thyatira, though, he says, To he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And then 321, to the church at Laodicea, To he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on the throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. That there is this promise to those who live this life. Again, in all of those letters, he is laying out what is pleasing to him and what is displeasing to him so that his churches could know what they needed to do to be an overcomer. And he lays out this promise of closeness to him and of reigning with him. I think I talked about it then, but if you worked at an enormous corporation and you were on the assembly line, you may never get to meet the guy that owns the company. But if you're a manager of a division or you are the head of a plant or you are, you're going to know him and have a, this closeness with him that so, many, many other people who are there will not have. And that an eternity is not going to be us sitting around doing nothing, that we are going to be praising God and serving him and to those who are faithful in this life, that he is going to give that opportunity to them to reign with him. And Jesus speaks of that. He gives the parable of the talents in Matthew, and the, we usually call it parable of the money usage in Luke. That one's in Luke 19, starting in verse 11. And in that one, it talks about the, there was this man that was going away so that he could receive a kingdom. And that's, that's Jesus. He was crucified, he was buried, he rose again, and then he ascended into heaven. He's the man who went away, and his kingdom is to come. But he left his servants with differing amounts of money, and they were to use those amounts of money and multiply them while he was gone. And you see, the first servant doubled his amount, the second servant doubled his amount, and the third servant didn't do anything with his. The first servant, when the master comes back, verse 16 of Luke 19, the first appeared saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. He had his times ten. He said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten. The second one, he gives authority over five. And then the last one, what he has is taken away from him. Jesus is presenting here this idea that He's given us each his spirit. He's given us each spiritual abilities. To the first two, he has praise for both of them. When we look at our lives, we realize that there are other believers who have been believers longer than us or have a different spiritual gift. We're not judging ourselves against them. How faithful are we with what God has given us? And he will in return reward us for eternity with what we have done. For my conclusion, another question that came up at, at our small group that I have heard 
numerous times before, is, is this a selfish goal? That when I'm looking for eternity and I want to have rewards, is that a selfish thing to do? I would say no. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, I do all, I'm sorry, nine, chapter 9, verse 23. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others... I myself will not become disqualified. Again, I think in Paul's eternal perspective that he had, again, is laid out here of what his life is all about. He wasn't worried about being disqualified, that he had someday was going to die and God was going to say to him, no, you, d you didn't believe Paul. He certainly wasn't worried about having to earn his way there because he knew he couldn't. Paul is clear throughout his letters that we are saved by grace through faith. What he's worried about is doing the good works that God has put before him, of showing up and hearing well done, of being a partaker of all that eternity has to offer, that all who are there are going to get to experience life with God forever. But he wants to reign with his Savior. He wants the full experience. And so everything he does is to that goal. You read about the things that Olympic athletes do. Now, my dad had a, a friend years ago. Their children were probably 10, 15 years older than my sister and I were. So he was telling me about this later that, that those kids from the time they were four or five had started ice skating and he had them in classes and training and his goal for his children was that they would be Olympic figure skaters. And both of them got close. But by the time they were 18 or 19, it became clear that they had spent 14 or 15 years of their life training five to six days a week, constantly going to competitions, constantly going to new coaches for nothing that neither one of them was ever going to be. But it's that kind of dedication that Paul had toward his life as a believer that he knew that God was going to reward. That it was him allowing the Spirit to work through him, that it was that focus on who God is, who he was as a person saved by grace, as a person who constantly would refer to his spiritual work as the grace that was given to him, that with that attitude and that love for the Lord, that gratitude that he had for eternal life, that he was going to show up and hear, well done. And lastly, Philippians three twelve to 15. Paul says, not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, 
I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, and if anything, you have a different attitude, and God will reveal that to you also. Paul is obviously working to obtain something, and that thing isn't eternal life. That was a gift that was given to him the moment that he believed in Jesus Christ for it. But there is something out there that he is working towards, that he is dedicating everything he has to obtaining. There's the glory and the life to come of reigning with his Savior. And he tells the believers there in Philippi that if this isn't your attitude, it needs to be. Let God reveal this to you. And I don't think, I don't think it could be something selfish if Paul, in throughout his writings, it makes it clear it's something he's focusing on. His writings are inspired by the Holy Spirit. But secondly, I think those that that live a life that is glorifying God on this earth and are then rewarded for that in eternity are going to glorify God for all of eternity for the choices that they made in this life to glorify him. But everything is about glorifying the Father. And this isn't that we are focused because we are selfish and we, we want this, that we want to glorify God. I want to do it in this life, and I want the opportunity to be close to him and to glorify him through serving him for eternity. And it's that eternal perspective that Paul had, that it wasn't a selfish motivation for himself, but it was what he had been shown by our Lord that he was pressing on towards, and that nothing was more important. That he was never going to give up. As long as God gave him breath in his lungs, he was going to use it to proclaim the gospel. That's a beautiful picture of what our lives should be and what our lives are going to be shown to be when we come before the judgment seat of Christ. And again, as we conclude, I, the reason I, I included this here, I'm talking about the rapture this week, is because I think this takes place right about where we're at in Revelation. It will happen right after our Lord comes back. And so I thought this would be... When we're studying end times things, we need to remember that it, God has made this clear in his scripture, that this is what we are pressing towards that we want to show up and hear well done. And we need to have that eternal perspective. And that the, the jobs that he's given us and the families that he's given us and responsibilities we have in this life are important, but do we use them to glorify him? That should be our, our question to ourselves and everything we do. Would you pray with me?